Hey y'all, it's LaShonda and I am giving a strong content warning um, for this episode of the Labors of Love podcast. Um, On this podcast, I'm going to be processing my reactions to the documentary Saving, uh, Surviving R. Kelly, and I'm going to be sharing intimate personal details of my own experience. And so not only is parental discretion advised, um, but um, I would say some some explicit content, sexual content will be discussed. And I want y'all to take care of yourselves. I want you to know ahead of time, it is never, ever my intent um, to to harm. And so this is a content warning, just saying, please be advised. And if while or after listening, um, you feel you need to process, please, um, we'll have uh, a link to the crisis, a list of crisis hotlines for you to talk to. If you're seeing a therapist or other professional, you may want to reach out to them. Um, if this activates any, uh, sense of harm to yourself or others, please visit your local emergency room or contact one of the crisis hotlines. I love y'all. Hey everyone, it's LaShonda from Labors of Love and you're listening to the Labors of Love podcast. So y'all today... I don't even know what I'm going to call this. Um, It's me and my producer slash husband slash love of my life today. And I I don't, I just wanted someone with me today. (laughs) So obviously, Jay, you pop in, you contribute as you will. But I just, I needed someone's presence with me in a more, um, concrete way as I go through. So um, over the course of the last several days, I've watched two documentaries. I actually haven't finished the last episode of one of them, which was Woodstock 99. Uh, Yeah, Woodstock 99, which was the documentary that we watched, which who knew they tried to recreate Woodstock in 1999. Maybe a lot of people knew that. (laughs) I did not. So there is a documentary about that. And then uh, yesterday I watched um, Surviving R. Kelly. And the combination of those two documentaries, as well as in between watching those, I had a two-day retreat for my liberatory coaching program that I am a participant in and did some amazing work there, personal work. It has just um, led to a concoction that is boiling up inside of me. And here's my outlet. I think I might have said this before um, on podcast in the past, but I, I do think that uh, today it will be true. I think this might be the most vulnerable podcast that I have ever recorded because I plan to 
actively real time process through some things that are coming up for me. So if you are an avid listener to the Labors of Love podcast, you know that I, I mean, I keep it real. I'm pretty transparent and pretty um, authentic in how I show up and, you know, nothing is scripted for me. But this is kind of one of the first times that I feel extremely vulnerable going in. I recognize that I operate in a space of vulnerability. And in that space of vulnerability, it is invitation and permission giving for others to be vulnerable, even if it's just with themselves. But the the rawness in which I'm experiencing this and, and choosing to use this as a platform to to process this um, is one of the few times that I do feel brave and courageous. Other times people call me brave and courageous and I'm not um, denying those attributes, but it doesn't feel like I'm being brave because I'm just stating things. So that's all of my asterisks and and caveats. Um, I haven't written anything down. So my mind and my, my processes are going to be all over the place, but so much came up for me over the last few days. So one, when I was watching the Woodstock 99, uh, (laughs) documentary, I think the thing that stood out to me the most is all, as all this chaos is beginning to ensue, the underlining exploitative capitalism that drove that whole thing um, is really the explosive seed that was planted that caused everything to blow up. And again, I watched episodes one and two, and it's a three-part series. And this is from a series on Netflix called Untold. And so this was the one we saw. So that's one thing. When we try to monetize and commodify things, in a way where that is the driving force, all of the other things that came out, the chaos, the danger, the exploitation, the assault, these are offspring. These are the natural consequence of exploitation and our capitalistic culture, society, and framework It just, it lends to these things. But throughout all of that, this is really just a passing through. I don't have a whole lot to say about this documentary, except that the whole time I am thinking this is a concoction for danger against women. And before we even got to the part in the documentary where it started to talk about sexual assault, I just, my whole body was like, I can't even imagine how many instances of sexual assault took place and were never reported because it's not a, we don't live in a culture where it's safe to report. But now um, let's go to surviving R. Kelly. (laughs) First of all, I also admit that with many things, I, I show up quote unquote late to the party. So this first documentary, and there's now a second, so there's surviving R. Kelly And then there's a Surviving R. Kelly part two. And I have gotten through the first almost two episodes of Surviving R. Kelly of this part two, but I did watch all of part one. I remember when it came out on Lifetime 
I remember hearing echoes of it. Like I knew it existed, but I did not watch it. And I, the distance in which I stay away from certain things never feels conscious. But then when I get proximity to the thing, I can reflect back and be like, oh, I can see how at that time of my life, this was just not a time for me to be proximate to that. So I didn't read a lot about it. I didn't see a lot about it. I just knew it existed. How did I come to watch this? I have no idea. (laughs) I was in my bed resting um, after the two-day retreat. And it was just like, maybe I'll watch a documentary. And I, I saw this one and I'm like, Ooh, this is going to be something, but let me watch it. So I'm just going to spit out some thoughts. Jay, you just chime in whenever you feel. Um, he as So Jay's my producer, right? So he is always um, around, if you will, when I'm recording, but I've like asked him to be visible for me today. And maybe that's just for support. So I want to start, the documentary does take us and give us a, gives us a historical um, perspective of Robert Kelly growing up. And by accounts from his brothers, um, he was a very shy and quiet, almost passive individual, small child um, who didn't come out to play often, stayed in the house and music became what I'm going to call his external support through which he spent a lot of time. Uh, And then in the first documentary, the first set, they talk about this a little bit. In the second one, they talked about it a little more in depth, which was, um, and he has stated before publicly that he was sexually abused as a child. And Understanding that what comes out of a person makes sense when you understand what went into them is not an attempt at excusing anything, but it does provide context and explanation. And he reported his abuse starting, I think, around six years old and going until he was about 14. And if the accounts of his passivity and fragileness and shyness Um, were met with these very aggressive, overt sexual abuses. What happens in the brain of a child is everything that happens to a young child, um, oftentimes we make sense of our world as children through play and through, um, oh, what's the word? when you do something that someone else does not imitation, but, uh, what word am I thinking of Jay? Um, copying. <laughs> yeah. What is, yeah. Something like that. Right. We make sense of our worlds by doing. So if you've been around small children, think about, um, the words they use. I worked at a home daycare when I was in college for a little while and there were two sisters. One was an itty bitty baby who could not talk. And the other was probably like a three or four year old little girl. And as she played, she always called people honey. Like if she's playing with dolls or she's playing with the other kids. Okay, honey. Okay, honey. Like this whole thing. This is, this was her thing. And I remember my first day there just witnessing the children. And when her mother came to pick her up, 
one of the first things she said when she saw her is, oh, hey, honey. And I was like, oh man, look at that. Like we make sense of our world by playing it out as children. So a person who has sexual abuse, sexual touching, acts, um, exposure to sexual material as a child, that's not something that stays in the head. It's something that needs to get um, played out for our for us to make sense of it as children. And so I had early life exposure to sex through sexual touching and things from similar age at slightly older children, but also early exposure to porn. And so while for me, the, the acting out of making sense of that, I didn't have, I wasn't around other kids much. Right. And when I was, they were, you know, I think my exposure to porn came after, um, some of these things had begun to happen to me and they were framed as play. So a term you may or may not have heard mood syntonic sexual abuse is when love and sex are paired together um, in a similar way that for some cultures and family, food and love is paired together. You demonstrate your love and care by feeding, by sharing bread together. Some families, hugs and love are paired together. I embrace you to show you that I love you. And so with mood syntonic sexual abuse, sex and love are paired together. And so sex and friendship, sex and community, and that is what happened to me. So as these things were framed as play and things, I began to engage in sexual behavior through the guidance of these other kids in my life because I craved community and connection. And yet there were no other children in my home and very few on my block. It's, this, was, this started before I started school, before I had access to a lot of other children. And so part of playing it out for me was in a, a, a world of fantasy in my head. So by the time I start kindergarten, I don't, I honestly don't know what the average five-year-old going into kindergarten thinks about often. But what I was thinking about were, um, who was I going to be romantically involved with now that I had access to more people? Who was I going to marry? What did that look like? Um, how would we express our love for each other through sexual acts and kissing? And yeah, I'm five. So having had that experience myself, there was a level of humanity and empathy that I could look through as I heard this part of Robert Kelly's story. And so then I keep watching and I think the next thing that I want to talk about is um, his hanging around his former high school. And this, according to the documentary, is where he would get uh, kind of first access to some of the young ladies, the teenagers, the adolescents 
um, that he will begin having sexual relationships with. And I started to think about growing up as an adolescent young girl, black girl in the nineties. And what I thought of myself now, part of this is the previous experiences that I have already um, shared with you. When sexual touch, sexual images, when sex was introduced to me at age four or five, it awakened and created a sense of knowing within me that naturally would not have been awakened until I was in my adolescent years. And so (laughs) I, I only know how to make sense of my world by putting it in categories that already exist. So that would inform how I saw myself as an adolescent as well. But I also want to think about this time frame where adolescence is the time frame where peer perception matters more than like parental perception. So at a certain point in our development, keeping our caregivers satisfied and happy is, um, is a survival, uh, is part of our survival. But through adolescence, as our bodies are literally preparing us to leave, you know, the, the primary nuclear family and branch off and all that stuff, stuff is happening in our brains and our bodies. We gravitate towards the opinions and the perceptions of our peers more. And if I'm honest, I never thought I was good enough. Um, (laughs) I'll have, there's, there's a a special bonus thing that I'm going to be doing called um, story time. And my first story time will give some insight into this. But as an adolescent, I never thought I was good enough. I thought I was smart enough. I always knew I was smart. Why? Because people reinforce that to me educators, maybe even my peers, parents, everyone um, really reinforced my intelligence. I, I would say that like my, my, my ability to communicate, that was positively reinforced. But how I looked, my, the body I navigated the world in, that wasn't reinforced so much. Um, I've always been a big girl. I recognize now what I thought was a big girl back then, not is my perception has shifted, but I was always bigger than my friends. Let's just say that like weighed more, but weight wasn't as important at that time for me as size, access to clothing that I felt good and comfortable in that was fashionable yet affordable, that whole thing. So during adolescence, Male attention was very important to me. Um, and I didn't get a lot of it based on how I looked. So I go and I'm thinking about my experience not being an isolated experience. Why? Because I know it's not. I've talked to too many people to know that, I, you know, that was a common experience. So imagine in the 90s, R. Kelly showing up at your school and taking notice in you. 
being like, hey, why don't you and your friends come, you know, to the studio? What? So I watched this documentary. I think I allowed my parts, (laughs) my littles, my parts. I allowed my parts to watch this documentary. And there were still parts of me that was like, heck yeah. Like I would have gone in the split of a, I would like, I'm there. (laughs) Like, wow, someone is noticing me and someone who has power, money, um, notoriety, I cannot imagine being like, no, I'm good. Like, oh my God. Now you add to that. I've never wanted, I love singing, but I've never wanted to be a singer as a career. Add to that someone who has high hopes and dreams about making it in the entertainment industry. And then you have this entertainment icon taking notice in you. Why would you not like want that? There's a lot of talk about where were the parents, um, which that's later. Like we will go for that convenient narrative all the time. But anyway, I'm all over the place, y'all. Just bear with me. (laughs) So this makes sense to me that these teenage girls are gravitating towards this man. Hell, adult women would have to, right? It there is something, there is a magnet to the to entertainers and to people of power, privilege, and all that stuff. So as I'm watching this documentary, I think about my own story. How male, the male gaze male attention was so important to me at the time. And you know where I wasn't getting it from? Peers. Boys my age wasn't checking for me. They wasn't looking for me. Whatever my perception was is whatever they were looking for, I wasn't. So around 14 years old, I started hanging out with an older cousin. And when I say older, she was 14 years older, about 13, 13 years older than me, 13, 14 years older. And um, it really felt at first like a mentee-mentor relationship. So I would like hang out with her. Now, this person had been in my life since I could remember, you know, since I was born. Um, And I remember being a little kid and like spending a night at her house with the aunt. And, you know, I remember going to the beach. I just remember all that. So this is not a stranger. Okay. But come 14, I'm now in the summer between my middle school, uh, eighth grade year and high school year. And I start to hang out with this cousin a lot. And I am ecstatic because someone is paying me attention. Again, I ain't got no kids on my block, nobody in my house. I crave connection. Here comes this person that's willing to give me this attention and I love it. Um, And I get to hang out with her. And one of the things that really put the uh, cherry on the cake or (laughs) does the cherry go on the cake? It goes somewhere. Cherry on top of ice cream. (laughs) Cherry on the sundae. Okay. So I was like, wait, okay. So the cherry, right? Um, is that she was a big girl, right? She was bigger than me by far, but how she carried herself was so, um, I was mesmerized by it because she was not ashamed of her body. As a matter of fact, to the contrary, she flaunted her body. I mean, the, the quintessential outfit for her was some tight ass jeans. And when I say tight, 
I mean, lay down on the bed and grab the pliers. There is somebody is listening to this and that is not a foreign concept to you. You've been there, right? Jeans so tight, you got to like, you got to like shimmy into them and then you lay on the bed because gravity pushes your stomach down and you grab the pliers and you pull up, (laughs) you pull up the zipper and you, uh, you button it. And when you stand up, it looks like you have on a denim layer of skin. (laughs) This, This was the pants and she would wear like these lace sheer tops but like a bra underneath and I just was like oh my god like somebody with this much body who was willing to show their body and not be ashamed of it it just rocked my world so if you've listened to the podcast you've heard me talk about probably on my episode with Imani when we were talking about clothing and stuff that um my mother dressed me a lot and for the most part as an adolescent I feel like I dress like a middle-aged woman because that's who was dressing me and there weren't a whole lot of options around it so my cousin is dressing trendy and also sexy and she's in this big body and that is so inspiring for me however I can't match her swag because I'm not buying my clothes (laughs) so we would her and I would she would help me in some ways try to like finesse the clothes I did have to give me a certain look that I was trying to achieve which was sexy right let's just be real I was I was out here trying to be appealing I was trying to be sexy and so with hanging out with her now I'm no longer around adolescent boys my age who are not even considering me I am now around grown-ass men and you know what they're paying attention to me they are noticing me And it is simultaneously a little uncomfortable because I'm not used to it. They're also paying more attention to her than they are to me, which is okay for me. Like being proximate to them, paying attention to her and noticing her, that's okay for me. And at the time, you know, 14 years old, there is a part of me that understands that their interest in her is purely sexual and I don't care. Because you got to understand by the time I'm 14, it's almost been a decade for me since these sexual things have been awakened inside of me with no place to go, with no understanding about them, um, except for the porn that I, that I watch. Um, I can't really talk to my friends about it. I like would sneak it in occasionally and realize that they either had no idea what I was talking about or I would feel judged. And so I just had nowhere to go with all this stuff that's been floating around inside of me for a decade. And then all of a sudden I'm with this person who seems to truly understand how to own her sexuality. And so my proximity to her and watching this happen, I didn't even necessarily need a lot of attention to come my way. Um, I recognize that if anyone said anything to me, because we would like go to different places. So we had a couple places if if I got Detroit listeners. So we had Rouge Park, which is where on the west side of Detroit, where you go and just kind of park your car, stand outside, play music. And then we had Belle Isle. And so we would go to these places. So that's another thing. Like as I'm watching this documentary, I'm recognizing that there is a part of me that resonates with these teenage girls, because I was one of them. And to feel special, that was a theme that so many of the survivors talked to. He would do this thing and I felt special. He would take me here. I felt special. So this, this, this desire to feel coveted, to feel wanted, to feel special is a real thing. And so, um, you know, my cousin, 
when I was with her, I was like 21 because at a certain point she introduced me to go into the bar. Now she would scope out a bar that did not take ID at the door, or she would establish a relationship with the bouncer so that when I would come, you know, they would just be so like, Hey, what's up? You know, that I would go in. I remember my first night going to a, going to the bar and we frequented one most often. I was so nervous. Okay. So we're in the car. I think I might've put on some eyeliner, maybe some lipstick, whatever I was wearing is whatever we could piece together that looked what, you know, didn't look like I was a 14 year old kid walking around. And when we went in, like, I remember being so nervous. One, am I going to get in? And so we got there and you know what? I got through the door. That level of anxiety dropped and made way for a brand new anxiety, which was, I have no idea how to act. (laughs) I got in this place based on the premise that I am 21 years old, yet I have absolutely no idea how to be a 21 year old. So I did what any logical person does. Well, you just do what she does. To this day, I am so grateful that she didn't drink because I think the trajectory of my life would have been very different. I was already on a trajectory that, (laughs) that was, that was, that didn't, that wasn't going where I would have wanted my life to go had I understood, but adding alcohol or substances to that, I think would have been a whole nother level, but my cousin didn't drink. So I didn't drink, you know, we got like Shirley temples or whatever. And, and I just kind of did what she did. Interestingly, I was kind of in the scene, kind of like, this it wasn't very appealing. There was music playing, but there really wasn't anybody dancing. And when we're talking back in the nineties, smoke, oh, like (laughs) just thick, thick, thick clouds of cigarette smoke everywhere, sticky bar, loud music. And so, you know, I was just kind of like, I don't know what the hype is, but okay. You know, I guess this is adult life. And so we would go to this bar, you know, whatever. And it was really like, um, if, if you can say putting your 14 year old cousin in a bar could be innocent. I think it started off as innocent as it could be. We went in, had non-alcoholic beverages, listened to some music, occasionally wiggled in our seat or danced next to our chair, very rarely on the actual dance floor. And then we would go home. So I want to pause now and intro. Well, where were your parents? You know what? My parents were trusting an adult. My parents entrusted me to an adult who was damn near 30 years old. And that trust that they put in her would have never made them consider or think that I was being taken to a bar. Even though they knew she hung out and she went to bars, you know, the narrative is that, you know, I would be at home sleep while she was doing her thing um I had learned how to what to say and what not to say we had a very intricate process of getting those smoky clothes off of me because the cousin did live with the aunt but the aunt worked like this late second shift in the factory and wouldn't be home but we always timed it where we got home before her me smelling like smoke didn't matter because the cousin smelled like smoke and the expectation was the cousin was going to smell like smoke because the cousin was out, but I was home. So we had this whole intricate plan. So as I listen to the stories and I hear people's curiosity, where were the parents? Well, the parents entrusted her to an adult, especially those who 
Robert Kelly said, I want to make you a star. I want to mentor you. I want to help you make it in the, in the, the music industry. Why would they have thought differently? Right. Um, now you may say, why would they have thought differently? Because he married a 15 year old named Aaliyah, right? I get it. (laughs) There's definitely some cognitive dissonance. We'll talk about how we as a whole culture messed that, just missed that. But anyway, um, I get it. You know, as these survivors were telling their stories, we're listening to it in this linear fashion, not realizing that sometimes they might've went home you know, oh, I was with my friends. I was doing this. If they had working parents or parents who were just saying, I trust you. Like I get it because I was in a whole ass bar every week. And my parents didn't know. And I would say that my parents were pretty attentive, right? They weren't just go do what you want to do. So there came a point where my cousin told me that she had scouted out a new bar, um, that we might could go to. They didn't take ID. And so she had also got the bouncer's number and, um, you know, she was going to be talking to the bouncer and then she told me good news. He has a cousin. So this would have been the first introduction for me around, um, any possibility of, me being connected with another person outside of my uh, outside of the cousin in these things right and I didn't even necessarily know what that meant he got a cousin and I remember her telling me he is fine right the bouncer is busy the cousin walked her to her car all of this stuff so what would ensue over the next when I'm gonna say week week and a half for me um I just want to give some detailed insight because I think watching the documentary, I could, I could almost hear some of the questions people would ask. And I got some answers for those based on my experience. So, um, at one point after she told me this, we go and we pick up the bouncer from (laughs) out. He was on the streets, like outside of, um, White Castle and we pick him up. Um, he gets in the back seat. I'm in the front seat. She's driving. Now context tells me, I didn't understand this at the time, but he was a dope boy. He was selling drugs. So she picks him up. And I think we end up going back to like her house. And we were in the basement, which is where we kind of hung out. And it was pretty benign while we were in the car. Questions came up. So he's just asking questions. And one of the questions that came up was, how old are you? Now, I don't know that her and I had rehearsed this ahead of time. I don't remember, but I do know that I said I was 17. So let's start there. People like they lied about their age. Yes, 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 we lie. Some of us lie about our age. That That's a real thing. And I remember thinking, who, like being relieved that I only had to be 17 because being 21 was, it gave me anxiety, (laughs) but being 17 seemed more realistic. You know, I was in high school. I could be honest about what high school I went to because I was a freshman now, or I was, I was going to be a freshman. 
And so, you know, whether I was in the ninth grade or whether I was in the 11th grade, like those questions didn't come up with what grade are you in? What do you like about school? It was just kind of like, oh, okay, what grade, you know, what school you go to and how old are you? And so 17. Okay. So I'm 17 and that felt easier to fake. It felt like I could be closer to myself. Other questions. I don't remember the questions or whatever, but I do remember him asking a few questions and observing some look, some exchange of look between her looking at her rearview mirror and her looking at him in the backseat. So we get to the house, we're in the basement and we're just talking. I do not remember the context of the conversation, but I do specifically remember her asking me to do a heel stretch. So I was a cheerleader in eighth grade and a heel stretch. If you pay attention to cheerleaders at all, is where someone will grab their heel you know, so let's say I grab my left heel of my foot with my left hand, and then I lift my leg in the air, that same leg all the way up or whatever. And so, right, it kind of feels like an odd, <laughs> an odd request, like do a heel stretch. And it's like, okay. Um, and so I did the heel stretch. And then I caught that same look, like they shared a glance. Okay. Now, I definitely have stories that I'm making up about this as an adult, but as a 14-year-old girl, like I noticed this thing that's happening, but there, I don't understand the subcontext of what's happening. So it's whatever. I do the heel stretch and he nods approvingly, just kind of like, you know, he looked at me a couple of times in a way that made me slightly uncomfortable. Um, but I didn't have a framework for discomfort around that. I just thought I was new to attention and didn't know how to take it. Okay. So I, I don't remember what happened. We end up dropping him back off, whatever, whatever. I don't think I would see him again. And then let's say the next weekend, um, the cousin babysat a little boy overnight because his mother worked third shift. So we spent a lot of time at this woman's house. So again, I hear the questions, right? They stand with him. What's going on? Shouldn't someone have known? But I thought about me, the house, the woman lived in that she babysat for was literally right down the street from my high school. So I think it was kind of pitched to my parents at some point when school started back, at least that the convenience, because I, I never went to school in my neighborhood, you know, it was a drive. I'm right down the street. She can stay the night over here. I'll take her to school. So this, this unreasonable, why were you spending so much time, you know, with her and all that stuff? It, it, it fit and it fit in a way that I think would not have caused my parents to, to have many red flags. Um, have they asked more questions though? <laughs> right. There are some questions I like, I am, they are not off the hook. They're not. But I'm also just painting this picture of, of how this story wove together. So we get to this weekend and the cousin tells me that they are coming to the house that night. And I can remember like even saying that, like my heart starts beating a little bit because I'm like, okay, all right, you know, all right, they, okay. Cause she, she had plenty of dudes. You know, I do need to let you know that she was hella promiscuous. She was out there. <laughs> there was never a desire of mine to be out there 
I knew she was. But to be honest with you, I don't even know what that meant. Because while I have this awakened sexual stuff inside of me, I am still extremely naive. And while I have been touched and things have happened, I am a virgin. And so okay, cool. They're coming over. I'm a little nervous because the cousin's supposed to be for me, but all right, it's all good. And y'all, I literally was thinking like, okay, like, well, we're going to play Monopoly. Like I am like, we're going to go in the basement. (laughs) We're going to play games. We're going to have a good time. And so the woman who we, she babysat for, left for work, the kid is asleep. And then like, she starts to, she's like, here, come here. And so she finds this like gown for me to put on. And again, it wasn't mine. It was actually the woman who lived there. And I remember it. It was black satin and it had like cherries all over it, right? So we are still in this mix of like playing Shonda dress up with the best that we have. So I wouldn't say that it was sexy, but you know, it was something. So she put that on me. She, she might have asked me what kind of panties I was wearing. And interestingly, I was wearing spankies. So spankies, if you don't know, are like the underwear that cheerleaders wear under their skirts. And I don't know, once I stopped cheerleading, I wore spankies as panties. And so I had on some spankies, they were blue. Um, And then like, she took me into the bathroom and I don't know, maybe she was doing something with my hair and, and the most point this, this will forever stay with me. She sprayed some perfume on me. And this perfume was a knockoff version of angel perfume. So to this day, I can be in a room full of a hundred people. I will smell angel perfume uh, because smell is processed in the part of our brain directly next to our amygdala, which lets us know if we are safe or in danger. And so she sprays this perfume on me and this whole thing is happening. And I don't necessarily understand why it's happening, Um, but I've trusted her up to this point. Okay, fine. So I sit down on the couch. They're on their way. Forrest Gump is playing on the TV and they get there. So the guys get there. I see the guy who I had seen before, the bouncer, and then I see his cousin. And it's like, hey, you know, how y'all doing or whatever. So I'm thinking we all about to go down to the basement, kick it. And my cousin is like, whatever she said, she let me know that her and the bouncer were going to be going to the basement, but we were going to be staying upstairs. And that's when I'm like, wait a minute, how am I supposed to know what to do if you not near me? Right. How do, okay. 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 But it's fine. He sits down next to me on the couch and I remember, um, pleasantries. Hey, how you doing? You know, what's up? I got to be, um, maybe we were introduced when he first walked in by name. And so we sit on the couch and then it's just this awkward silence and Forrest Gump is playing. And I remember the two words that came out of my mouth. I simply said, what's up at that point he like yeah what's up reaches over wraps his arm around me puts me on his lap he starts kissing me and I'm like okay (laughs) like 
I um uh okay right I lit I think I meant what's up what are you doing how are you so from that point he then transitions me and lays me on the floor and there is this whole thing going through my mind it's so complex on one hand there is mass confusion about what is happening my heart is beating I do not know what's going on There is another part of me that was like, I don't think I like where this is going. Where is this going? But then there's another part of me that's like, well, you can't say no. You can't say stop. If you don't say no, if you say no, he'll know that you're not 17. That was a a, a literal thought that I had. So I'm laying on the floor. All of these things are going through my mind. He starts to unbutton the gown I have on. Now I want to be clear. I didn't say no, but I also want to be clear that I wasn't asked a fucking question. And there was nothing, nothing, nothing about my body language or anything that would have suggested that I knew what the hell was going on. And I also want to put the caveat here that consent is not the absence of a no, but consent is the presence of a sober-minded yes. And so I hear a noise that in my 14-year-old brain sounds like a candy wrapper. And all this stuff is still going through my mind. I'm laying on the floor, still, not moving, not engaging, and he begins to penetrate me. And at that moment, I don't know. It, it, whatever one step short of dissociation is, like I felt my mind about to go somewhere else, but I was still relatively present. And I do remember to the best of my ability, trying to close my legs, like trying to limit depth and access to my body by like clenching my thighs together. And that was met with the response of equal and opposite pressure of trying to gain access to my body by prying my thighs apart. And at some point, I think the the bouncer might have come upstairs and where I was laying on the floor was right in the doorway that led to the kitchen which is where they would have had to go through to get to the basement and so it was kind of like him coming upstairs and then the guy he backed up off me um and I think the bouncer kind of was like oh and like turned to go downstairs And then, oh boy, went into the bathroom and I was just lying there, unaware of really what had just happened to me. Um, At some point I do get up and button my gown. They come upstairs, he comes out of the bathroom And 
yeah I the bouncer is like you know they were about to go and I'm like okay um I I think he I, I think I we hugged maybe maybe he kissed me I don't remember but I do remember the cousin saying oh she in love now I remember that I do remember that and they left I never saw him again ever so as I watch this documentary of these young women sharing their stories I understood. I understood in a very personal way. It's not the same story, but there are overlapping elements. After they left, I don't remember the conversation with the cousin. Um, I don't think we talked about it. But some point after that, and I, I, I still, so pause, I want to talk about cognitive dissonance might be a term you're familiar with, maybe not, but cognitive dissonance is essentially like when there are two very strongly opposing things happening, it can be very painful for the brain. So cognitive dissonance in the case of Robert Kelly is a man who sang, I believe I can fly. That song was sang in movies, graduations, churches. He's this epitome of Black excellence in music and all of this. And so he exists in that way, in the minds of a whole culture. And then there are these allegations of him being a pedophilic predator. The gap between those two ideals of him and both being true, it's too painful. So the brain, you, you got to pick one. And whichever one gets picked, incoming data gets filtered for the sake of the narrative that, that was picked. And so that's how in the face of 30 years of evidence of all the terrible shit he's done to young girls, people can still say things like, but we don't really know or blame the parent. We, you know, all of the things that are happening. So cognitive dissonance for me was like, oh man, see, I wanted to give you all the definition and then I forgot where I was going with it. Um, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The cognitive dissonance for me is the next piece of information I'm about to tell you. I still can't wrap my mind around how I know it, but I promise I'm not making it up. At some point, the cousin actually told me this because there's no other way I can I could have known it. And she told me. So as you all know, I said I lied and said I was 17. Um, oh, he was 21. That's the part of the story. He was 21. He was, he was a grown as man. So apparently at some point leading up to her meeting them, me meeting the bouncer and this encounter at the house, they had a discussion in which my actual age came up. 
So this man did not believe that he was having sex with a 17-year-old. He knew that he was having sex with a 14-year-old. And she told me that he said, I can't do that. I wouldn't want someone to do that to my daughter. To which she replied, somebody got to do it at some point. So cognitive dissonance. I still hung out with the cousin. I didn't understand that I had been violated. My first time calling it rape was when I was 30. And that took a lot of work and a lot of therapy. Because all of these narratives, the same questions that get asked about those brave women on that documentary were the same questions I asked myself. What had I done to cause this? Um, What didn't I do to make it stop? If I didn't do something to make it stop, doesn't that mean I wanted it? Doesn't that mean I asked for it? My, the cousin, um, (laughs) yeah, I I don't call her my cousin. She's the cousin. It is proximal only to help you understand the relationship, but I make no claim of her. So, um, as I continued to hang out with her, she would expose me to and take me to and orchestrate a few more of these occurrences with grown men. And then somehow, (laughs) by literally the grace of God, I just stopped hanging out with the cousin. I, I can't, there is no like incident. There was no event. There was no falling out. I do not, I've, I've been trying to find the thing. Like, I don't know what happened, but at some point I just kind of went back into being an average high school student for that. I am so grateful. Now there are a lot of other stories that have impacted my worldview, my belief system that's associated with the cousin that's associated with sexuality and all that stuff. But This is the first time that in this amount of depth, I have ever shared this story this publicly. I am inspired by the courage of the women in that documentary. But I also feel like part of my call is to bring humanity to things that otherwise people can make excuses for. 
So I I don't even, I, I know after that documentary dropped, though, I haven't even gotten through all the episodes that would probably tell me to a degree how much hell they went through. We're talking threats on their life. We're talking about there is a whole thing that came out surviving the lies, which was calling themselves exposing them and putting like very nude, vulnerable videos and pictures of them out. So they went through so much. And part of what happens when a person makes a claim of sexual assault or sexual abuse is that we have this fucked up culture that that first doesn't look at the perpetrator. It automatically looks at the victim and goes, if how 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 do we make sense of what the claims are and the discrediting of the victim so that stuff started to happen with all of these um young ladies i think the other part is to some extent some of them weren't saying no they were saying yes right they were saying yeah if having sex with you helps me continue to be your special one i'll do it if if having sex with you helps me get this career that I want, I'll do it. But what we're not looking at is his intentional preying on a little girl. So that leads me to this other point. Is I realized that black girls never get to be girls. Somewhere in the mind of the cousin, of this man, of the bouncer, I wasn't a little girl. Now, granted, I didn't want to be a little girl. The whole narrative around my adolescence was adulthood, sexy adulthood, you know, free to do what you want to do, adulthood. And and yet there was like this innocence in a 14-year-old girl that never was seen in me. If I had a quarter for every time I have been told that I'm wise beyond my years, mature for my age, you know, I I look pretty much the same as I did when I was in high school right now, right? So yeah, I looked older, but there there was just this 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 thing where black girls don't get to be girls. We're adultified in so many ways. You got a six year old who has on an outfit, no matter what it is, and some and fast tail oh it just my like my stomach hurts right now so when I watched this I had to even notice that notion coming up in me when they would show the historical pictures of these young ladies all the thoughts was well she didn't look and and it's not about the it wasn't about provocative clothing it was just this idea that we look at a young black girl and the assumption is she's a woman So then someone in the documentary mentioned this and it didn't even cross my mind. Like, yo, if these were young white girls that Robert Kelly was messing with, it would have had a whole different thing. And I'm like, oh my God, because there is almost a perpetual innocence for white women, let alone white teenagers and girls, albeit except for fat girls and I use fat as a neutral descriptor not as an insult it has been my experience that if it's a skinny or thin white girl 
this youth and this innocence is there. If she's a bigger white girl, then all of a sudden there's a more maternal thing that has to do with our generalized fat phobia as a country. But the whole point is there is never an assumed childhood innocence for black girls. And so therefore that comes with it, no need to protect. So as I'm sitting here watching, I'm like, my God, all as now as a culture, we just kept playing this music. I recognize that while there were echoes of my awareness of some of this stuff, I didn't really know, you know, I'm around the same age that they were. I didn't really know all this stuff was going on, but I just know that like, as a culture in general, but especially as a black culture, he continued to be celebrated headline and stuff, people buying this music. And if that wasn't the biggest middle finger to black womanhood, I don't know what was. And so I think about how before I knew the term human trafficking, I was trafficked. But the thing is, what I, the answer I still don't have is for what? I don't know what she got. I don't know if she got money. She might have. I don't know. If she didn't, what for? Now, there is the part of me that can lean into an empathetic understanding that she wasn't protected. We never talked about her story, but, you know, I'm sure there are things there But I'm sharing this so openly, so vulnerably. Because you don't know those women on that documentary. And you might start making up stories. You might want to say to yourself, well, what was she wearing? Which I hate that question. They can be walking around butt naked. Consent. It's consent. They were children. What were they wearing? Well, what were they doing? Well, what were they saying? You can do all of that, but can you do it with me? Do those same questions come up? The person whose podcast you listen to, the person who's doing all this work to help people heal. Do you have those same questions? Maybe you do. I don't know. But I want to put a humanity to this experience because it's harder for you to dismiss me because of this personal attachment that you feel to me I'll probably say that the majority of my listeners I've never personally met but when I do meet them by and large they tell me the same thing it feels like I know you (laughs) like I said if you listen to my podcast regularly I talk to y'all more than I talk to a lot of other people consistently. Do you trust me? You know, hashtag believe black women. And then people are saying, well, black women lie too. Am I lying? Can you hear the nuance and the difficulty in that story? Can you hear how I didn't know any different? Can you hear how our culture set up such a sexualized and capitalistic uh, mm, aspirational life that we are willing to do whatever we can to adhere to what we're told we're supposed to be. Yeah. 
So I continue watching this documentary. And there are aspects of what was shared by those survivors that I have absolutely no um, personalized experience with like the over control and all of those things, some crazy, crazy stuff. And then there is how many people, industries, entities had to turn a blind eye or were actually physically complicit in this thing being able to go on for three years, 30 years. The fact that the boy, homeboy can't even read that good. Like at one point, his ex-wife was on the documentary and she said, I'm not trying to be funny, but he don't read that good. Who booking these flights? Who's sending the cars? Who getting the hotel? He ain't doing it himself. Um, on the second part too, there's this woman, there are two women actually, who are in, were supporting R. Kelly. And I, I'm, I'm going to be straight, straight up with y'all. I hadn't been angry watching the documentary at all. I went through a whole bunch of emotions, a whole bunch of them. Anger wasn't one of them. You know, I was, I was able to get underneath some of those layers for myself and start with the hurt and the the pain and the, the disbelief, the disappointment, the fear. But when I saw these two white women on there supporting him and discrediting the victims, I got mad. Oh my God, I got mad. Oh my God, I got so mad. <laughs> it was, it, and I'll tell you, the sheer fact they were white women is what sent me over the edge. And the fact that there is this prolonged history that um, yielding the power of the white woman, it's weapon, her weaponized tears and words. It just, it, oh, so it sent me, I, yeah. So that's a whole other thing. Um, I don't even remember where I was. Oh yeah. All the people, all that had to be complicit in, in making this happen. So now that, that, um, that leads me to a personal invitation for myself, but also for you, what are you complicit in? As you look around your life, what abuse, what oppression, what inequities are you complicit in? I'm not even next step. What do I do with that? That's a different conversation, but can you just open your eyes? Can I open my eyes? Can we recognize that there are some horrible things happening in this world that we are turning a blind eye to, or sometimes actively participating in their perpetuation? I felt, I felt called to look at that in a very different way. Um, as I continue to watch this documentary, it also unearthed for me the fact that in my mid-20s, um, I was preyed upon in a very similar way that Robert Kelly preyed upon these young women. And I had never thought about it before watching this documentary because I was an adult. I was in my mid-20s. But as I was in a relationship, a marriage that was completely dissatisfying, um, I had gotten into the relationship and marriage because um, I didn't think I was worthy. No one would love me. I want to tell you the reverberating effect of someone stealing my virginity 
walking out the door and I never seeing them again, that impacted me. They'll never come back. I'm not worthy of returning to. When Jay and I got together and we were dating, he would visit me pretty much daily after work. And then he would like tuck my son in. He would tuck me in, say goodnight. He would leave. And no lie, every single night, I literally was like, have this fear that he was not going to come back. And I just remember him always saying, I always come back. I always come back. He didn't know this. He he knew about this. He didn't know the details of the story enough to say those words to me because he knew I needed to hear them. But at 14, the whole belief and worldview about myself was that I was disposable, unlovable, undesirable. And so this is the life I'm living. I'm married to someone, but we're pretty much living separate lives. The whole is whatever. And I worked with a guy who was 16 years older than me. And my perception at the time was, oh my God, he really sees me. Oh my God, like he sees what my husband can't see. He really cares about me. And now the lens is this fucker could smell my vulnerability from a mile away. It was like a shark drawn to blood in the water. And he said all the things. He did all the things that made me feel special. And it wasn't until watching this documentary that I realized that I was preyed upon. My vulnerabilities were exploited in ways that led to his gratification. And so, yeah. Yeah. I don't even know how long I've been talking. I don't even know how long (laughs) this episode, uh, has been but those are the things I needed to get out of me I needed someone or someone's to hear my story and 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 feel close to the human telling that story because there are other humans telling their story and it can be so easy to dismiss them, to put your own self-interest above their truths and realities. And that pains me because every question, every, I don't read a lot of comments and stuff, but all of the victim blaming that's happening towards them, that's the thing. Some of those people in that documentary, you'll never meet them. They'll never hear your words. They'll never hear your doubt. They'll never hear your victim blaming. However, I promise you, promise you, you are proximate to someone who has been sexually abused or assaulted and you don't even know it. So the words you choose to use about those women on that documentary, or maybe even me or about Kavanaugh's accusers, or about Bill Cosby's accusers. It, those people will never, ever hear you. But your niece will. Your cousin, your sister, your mother, your grandmother, your neighbor, your daughter, your son. It's not just women. They hear you. And every time you can't even make space for the possibility of the reality of someone who has been assaulted, you chip away 
at the very essence of that person and their truth. So think about that. Think about that before you go commenting on social media, before you have your off comments on the side, because you think you are far removed from it. You think it can't touch you. If it didn't happen to you, I'm happy for you. I really am. I mean that as sincerely as possible. Some people don't think it happened to them, but it did. It took me a really long time to recognize this for what it was. I didn't recognize it as an assault. I didn't recognize it as a violation. I didn't recognize it as something I I should have been protected from until I was 30 years old. So this lived within me for 16 years and I just thought it was what it was. And that's possible. And that doesn't make you anything but human. My brain and body collaborated to do the best it could to keep me alive. And so it suppressed some things. It repressed some things. It, it re-narrated some things. So it didn't seem as bad. So yeah, I'm just putting this out here, y'all, because that's what I do. I'm a lot of things, but a liar isn't one of them. And so I just think that's how I'm going to leave it today. I'm not even going to do my normal spiel, but I will say, if you listen to this podcast regularly, if your life has been in any way touched or changed because of my labor, I need you to head over to Patreon. (laughs) There's various levels, y'all. I don't think people understand the cost for me to show up in this way. And I do, I, I do, and I will continue. But if you want to support me, you want to support my work and you want to make my offerings that are free and accessible to you, sustainable, I could use your support. So the Patreon link is in the, um, the show notes, head on over. In addition to supporting though, you get exclusive content to help you continue to work through your healing. I appreciate you listening. Um, I hope you hearing this does whatever it needs to do for you to have more curiosity, compassion, and empathy in this world. Until we connect again, you all be well.